Hello, I'm Rob Forsyth. Welcome to Liberalism in Question. In this half-hour podcast series from the Centre for Independent Studies, we explore questions and challenges to liberalism today. Michael Bird is academic dean at Ridley College, an Anglican theological college in Melbourne, uh, where he uh, majors in New Testament studies. In another life, he was also a paratrooper and involved in military intelligence. Michael, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me, Rob. It's great to be with you and your listeners. Now, Michael, you are a Christian person, a Christian minister, in fact, Anglican priest, and yet I see in your recent book, Religious Freedom in a Secular Age, a Christian case for liberty, equality, and secular government. You actually believe that secular governments are good. How can a religious person believe in secularism? Well, that's a good question because many people of faith tend to think of secularism as the boogeyman uh, who's out to get you. Uh, But I think it's a little bit more complex than that. It's true there are some very uh, militant and aggressive forms of secularism, but secularism is in fact a Christian creation. It's something that Christian states uh, formulated so they can learn to live with religious differences. So rather than tear one another apart over Protestant versus Catholic or Baptist versus Episcopalian or Wesleyan versus Methodist, we found a way in which we could live in peace with one another. And that was by discerning the areas in civic life where religion is allowed to matter and those areas of life where religion is not allowed to matter. And I like to think that secularism has two key premises. It's number one, it's going to stop us from stop us from living in a theocracy. So we're not going to replace the governor general or a president with a Dalai Lama, a pope, an ayatollah or a chief rabbi. So we're not going to do an, a, a theocracy. But here's the other side to secularism. Secularism means the government doesn't tell you how to do your religion. And secularism, in its best sense, in its benign practice, is a bodyguard protecting you, protecting people of faith from government interference. So that's why I think secularism is a good thing. And people of faith, especially Christians, should be a champion for it. It arose in the time of the the rise of, you might say, classical liberal thought. Yeah, it did. It did. Uh, Certainly after the 30 30 years war, uh, which were in many ways uh, about religion, you know, people realise we can't keep doing this. You know, we can't just keep tearing one another over religious differences. Uh, I mean, there there was religious toleration in other parts of the world. I mean, the Mongol Empire, for all its violence, uh, was very well known for its religious toleration. But out of that sort of early modern period, there was the idea that uh, the, the prince or the king should no longer be dictating the religion of the land. Each individual person should be able to free to choose their own religion for themselves. And that creates a context where you can have a land of all faiths and none. Michael Bird, doesn't the formula go also go the other way, that it means that religious thinkers or religious people can't impose their will on others? Exactly. And, and that's, that's a good thing. You don't want anyone imposing any will, whether that's a, uh, a militant atheism like you had in the Soviet Union, or you, know, you can't demand everyone be Catholic, everyone be Presbyterian, or everyone be Buddhist or anything like that. So it, secularism means there's going to be a lack of coercion in matters of religion. There's also going to be no punitive measures for people for the observance or non-observance of their religion. Does it mean that religious concepts or ideas no longer have a place in, in, in debate over public policy? Well, that, secular debate or not? 
Yeah, well, some people some people do try to argue it does. Like, you know, you, you, I mean, I found it hilarious, people complaining that because Scott Morrison was a Pentecostal, it meant that Australia was now living in a de facto theocracy or a soft theocracy, I, 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 I had heard it said. Um, the fact that people of faith can run for public office, serve for public office and be elected to the office of prime minister uh, doesn't indicate that you have a theocracy. It just means you have a liberal, a liberal uh, democracy where anyone of any background can run for the highest office in the land. And I do have to say, I mean, secularism means there, there is a distinction between what the state does and what religious communities do. But that doesn't mean or doesn't preclude that church and state uh, can work together for areas of mutual cooperation, whether that's education, philanthropy, uh, the charity sector, or things like having chaplains in the armed services or, or something like that. And we also have to accept the fact that there is always going to be uh, a little bit of influence between religion and politics for this re region, okay? Um, government is about policies. Policies are based on values, and values are shaped by things such as religion. So there is always going to be some degree of religious influence in government, and the only way to stop that is to ban people of faith uh, exercising political opinions, stop them voting, stop them running for public office. In other words, the only way to have uh, no interaction between church and state would be to disenfranchise and censor religious uh, members of the public. After the recent census, uh, where there was a decline in, in explicit religious affiliation, uh, not not interesting to a minority, but decline. Some people said, "Ah, this is a sign that we are secular in another sense, We're not a non-believing country, and therefore religion should have even less to do with us." What, what was your reaction to those calls for the marginalisation of churches because census figures had uh, had shown that they were not as popular not uh, now as they were 10, 15 years ago? I thought it was uh, somewhere between absurd and troubling. Uh, it's like saying, well, there's not many trans people in Australia, so therefore why bother having trans rights? You know, uh, the, the, perp the purpose of laws, the purpose of a constitution is to protect minorities from the majority. That, that, that's what laws do. That's the purpose of law. So the purpose of having something like, well, I don't know, an anti-religious discrimination law is based on the idea that certain religions may be discriminated against or certain people of faith may experience matters of coercion or vitriol or discrimination. So um, the, the, the rights of the Australian public whether that is for a Rastafarian or for a Muslim or for a Catholic or for uh, an agnostic, those rights are not dependent on the number of people who adhere to that religion or non-religion. And that's what, we, that's what we've got to remember, that rights is not a numbers game. And the purpose of laws and constitutions is to protect minorities from the mob. Uh, let me move on a bit further. You write in your book, um, Religious Freedom in a Secular Age, that there's another kind of secularism, a, a militant secularism as well. You, you, you speak in favour of a liberal democratic secularism, but there's another kind of secularism. Do you want to talk about that for a moment? Yeah, there, there is a more mil militant forms of secularism which seeks to uh, sometimes just compartmentalise religion a bit further so it can't have any 
voice on influence on the public square or the public sector. And then there are those varieties of uh, militant secularism that believe religion is a very, very dangerous distraction from the goals of the state. And that is to say the state should be your Allah, your Buddha, and your Jesus. And all that religious energy needs to be transferred into areas of political activity and allegiance. And that is what I, I, I think is uh, the more dangerous, uh, albeit often seductive version of secularism that could potentially be available uh, around about. You were, you were just saying that um, there, is a, there is a dangerous kind of secularism, in your point of view, where the state overreaches itself and seeks to become the uh, not takes a role which can replace religion or replace what religion would give. Now, what, what does that look like though in real life? I don't know. I don't know any government that says they're Jesus or Allah. In practical terms, what does the overreach that you're worried about look like? Can you give well, me examples, Michael? I can Barrett? give you a precise legal case, and that would be the case of Walsh for Saint Vincent's de Paul's uh, in Queensland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is where Saint Vincent's de Paul, which is a Catholic charity had an officer, um, and it was eventually noted that this officer who was president of one of the branches was not a Roman Catholic, and the person in question was asked to either uh, convert to Catholicism or to resign her role, uh, for which she refused. She took St. Vincent's de Paul's to court, and, and then in a decision that, that, I mean, I understand at one level, but quite frankly baffles me, the court determined that St. Vincent's de Paul's was not a religious entity, um, so therefore it was not subject to the exemptions to anti-discrimination law. And they also determined that there was uh, no evidence that being a Catholic was necessary for the exercise of the roles of the particular uh, position in question. Now, this is alarming because it means the state was now determining that an organisation called St. Vincent de Paul's, which I think if you asked anyone on the street, is St. Vincent de Paul's a Catholic charity? I think you'd get about 100% of people saying yes, but the government had determined it was not a religious entity. And they were also determining what are the essential and non-essential elements uh, of being Catholic or which areas of life religion is allowed to matter. And that I I do find very problematic because the moment the state tells you, you know, what is essential or non-essential to your religion or which areas of life religion is allowed to matter in within a religious organization, there you have something which is a, a bracket creep. And that is less secularism and more Erastianism, the attempt to regulate religion by the state. And one key thing I think people have got to remember In order for secularism to work, the state must consider itself incompetent to adjudicate in matters of religion, okay? Because otherwise, you'll get some really weird situations. Uh, You know, imagine if there was a principal of of a Catholic high school who had a website called Down with the Papacy. And he was advocating to get rid of um, papal infallibility. He wanted to, you know, overturn Vatican I. You know, and you know, and imagine if he got fired, and imagine if a court was asked to determine is belief in papal infallibility an essential or non-essential aspect of being a Catholic. Once the state has to adjudicate on questions like that, it's the end of secularism because the state must regard itself as incompetent 
to judge on intra-religious matters. But what we saw in the Walsh versus St. Vincent de Paul's case, and there's been some other cases similarly in the United Kingdom, is where governments have told religions what is an essential or non-essential aspect of their religion and which roles within their organization religion is allowed to matter in. So the- there are there are so, so there are some good examples I think of this kind of creep, and I would argue it's it's not not just a threat to say religious freedom. It's worse. It's a threat to the secularity of government. One of the marks of of a classical liberal state is paradoxically the state does not determine the big questions of life. It doesn't yeah. determine the what the chief end of man is. It doesn't determine what the purpose of life is if there's a god or not. Uh, that, it seems to me, c- comes under question when the state seeks to reform us. Um, I'm thinking particularly of some of the issues in the culture wars. You do write that um, the culture wars are going to have a major effect on the nature of religious freedom in many Western societies. And I guess, uh, could you unpack that a little further, that the when the state is increasingly increasing to um, prevent discrimination, uh, allow minority rights, seems inevitably going to put it in a situation where that we and religious bodies and come into conflict. Yeah, and that's exactly what we're having now, and that is certainly the epicenter of the current debates we're having. Uh, to, to be to be honest, the big issues we're facing are how do we balance how do we balance LGBTI rights with religious freedom? So LGBTI people have the right to freedom um, to their own happiness, to uh, live without violence, vitriol, or discrimination. But being a multicultural country, we have very different views amongst our citizens uh, based on what well, what is family, marriage, and sexuality. There are lots of differences uh, between people, between religions, within religions on these topics. So how do we accommodate both? How do we have a tolerant and inclusive society for LGBT, LGBTI people? But how do we recognize that, largely because of religion? We have some very diverse views about family, marriage, and sexuality, and that's what how we're trying to balance. And different jurisdictions in Australia are trying to attain that balance differently. At the moment, it's coming down to what happens in religious schools, uh, like Christian schools, Catholic schools, Muslim schools, and how they are able to retain the integrity of their ethos, being organisations that are in, in, in practice and by belief, Catholic or Muslim, but how do you balance that with a gen a general non-discrimination policy? So we, we generally think that you know discrimination is is usually a bad thing unless you can prove it's absolutely necessary. But the debate is well, what is absolutely necessary? And in some places like Queensland, um, you're reaching, I think you're reaching a point where schools are being briefed, religious schools are being briefed and being told the only person in a school who has a necessary religious qualification is the school chaplain. Uh, because unless you've got an explicit you know, ordained position or an explicit religious functionary, maybe even the school principal, does, it, does, a, uh, does a principal of a Christian school really need to be Christian if all he is doing is administration? He's not serving sacraments. He's not preaching. Uh, he's just kind of managing people and programs. Do you really need to have a religious adherence to that? So that's where the debate is going at the moment. And it depends which jurisdiction you're in, depends on how that balance is, is being played out. Uh, in some places, I think in Queensland and Victoria, uh, it's certainly more to the detriment of religious communities. Uh, in other places, I think they're trying to attain a fairer balance 
between non-discrimination of LGBTI people but allowing religious organisations to maintain their identity. One of the problems, I think, in this area is that although religious schools are run by religious organisations, many of the many of the uh, stakeholders, parents, children mm. involved, uh, are not are not in those schools for the religious side. In fact, that's almost a distraction or or or, or impediment. And mm. so, it's, you don't you don't have a pure religious school. They are much they are mixed up, and therefore, these questions can become quite divisive within the communities themselves. Yeah, it's also, and it's hard to find a Christian French teacher. So, you know, um, so if you want a French teacher for your students and the only one is a guy who's, you know, atheist, agnostic or whatever, and, you know, you say to him or her, look, I mean, you, know, you don't have to be an adherent to our religion, but just you know, be respectful. You know, don't go around, you know, handing out Richard Dawkins books or anything like that. And you're more than fine. Uh, and then some will say, well, hang on, if the French teacher doesn't need to be a Christian, then why does any teacher in your school need to be a Christian? So that that's the kind of... Um, that's the sort of debates that people are having, and you're going to get a gradual bracket creep. Uh, do, do, do you think the provision of government money for or hospitals, schools, takes with it an obligation to be less discriminatory than they if they were just private organisations? Well, you could make a case, he who pays the piper calls the tune, and if uh, democratic liberal governments want to put conditions on the use of their money, you can argue that's within their rights. Uh, they've then got to answer to the uh, constituencies electing them whether they want that to do want people to do that. So, I think it you know depends on your state, but you know up to what fifteen to forty percent of people have their children in independent or religious yeah. schools, and if those schools are no longer able to maintain their religious ethos, then people will be able to um, voice their discontent, uh, their discontent at the voting booth. So, so on the one hand, yes, um, government, you know, if they're handing out money, they get the, they get to set the rules of how it's used, but government still has to answer to the citizens. And many of those citizens sent their, their children to religious schools because precisely because of their religious ethos. Yes, and if and that is being harmed, then they can do something about it. I mean, there, and, uh, there are different kinds of religious schools. There's a, the uh, the old ones that were set up by by religious organisations, but are very secular in many ways. Mm. Then there, I call there are the intensely the um, small intense religious communities, which are very strict, and, and therefore they're not all the same kind. I I myself wonder, Michael Bird, that if government's giving money to institutions which have religious back formation, a lot depends upon why they're giving the money. If they're giving money to encourage diversity in the community. Then putting rules on the on the organisations that remove their very character, like preventing them from hiring people of their own faith, would be contrary to their own policy. In other words, so I think that if if the government's giving money to encourage different kinds of schools, different kinds of ethos hospitals to attack the ethos, um, would be counterproductive. Well, I agree, and you know one of the things about having uh, independent and religious schools that does bring diversity to the education sector. Yeah. Many of these religious and independent schools are some of the best um, schools in the country. Uh, and that's something to um, celebrate. However, there is pressure from the public sector and the, um, the media to bring these schools into line with broader currents about anti-discrimination law or anti-discrimination um, ethos in certain places. And so schools, much like government, can be caught between a rock and a hard place on how they do this. And different jurisdictions are, you know, trying to do different things in this space. Some will give a live and let live, like if you don't want to send your kids to a religious school, don't do it. 
Others believe religious schools must be brought in and made to comply with certain progressive orthodoxies. Right. I'm talking with Michael Bird. He's a Christian minister and a fierce defender of secularism, which he regards as a very good thing. Although it, by secularism, Michael's, Michael means the state keeping out of religion and religion not bossing the state either. It's, a, it's an agreement to live in diversity. Michael Baird, it seems to me for, for the state to recognise the secular state, to recognise religious communities having a place, they must in some sense allow the religious communities, even if the state does not itself have a religion, to be in some sense good. There are some things the state, the state would not allow anti-Semitism, the state would not allow um, a number of activities, would not allow racism, no matter who, no matter what, what it up. Do you see a problem in that Western societies, maybe Australian society, is people are less and less convinced of the benign nature of religion and therefore the less likely to give it a break. Well, and it depends. I think in a lot of places, religion is still treated with um, uh, a certain type. I mean, people recognize that you know religion can be good for society in some ways. And you know, I've, I've often tell the story like, you know, if you're at home and you had to take one of your kids to the hospital and you had to leave one of your kids with your neighbour, if one neighbour was a Salvation Army officer and the other neighbour was, you know, running a meth lab, um, who would you leave your kid your kid with? I'm pretty sure everyone says the Salvation Army officer, um, you know, because at least you're playing the percentages um, on what you're going to get. But uh, I, I, I think the, I mean, there, there is a lot of public hostility towards religion. Um, the, I think that, it's that's what I'm thinking of. Yes. Yeah. I, I, and we actually have statistics on that. Um, according to a uh, what was it a, a 2018 Pew um, survey uh, in Asia Pacific, Australia rates very high, not on government interference in religion, but in terms of social hostility to religion. We do have incidents of Islamophobia, of uh, some of anti-Semitism, and, and even certain you know anti-Catholic and even anti-Christian sentiments can be expressed as well. Um, I think there, there is a lot of hostility towards religion, but it's very intense in very small sectors. Right. So uh, largely you're talking about what I would call upper middle class white progressives tend to be um, more virulent against religion, uh, sort of, you know, dare I say, guardian readers, maybe um, from time to time, you know, perhaps the ABC uh, in the media. Uh, parts of Fairfax. So you, you do find some um, vi vigorous anti-religious sentiment um, across the Australian sector, but I think it's, it's, it's very intense in small areas. But the areas are often the thought leaders. They're the people who help push it is. policy. And exactly. And so, um, you know, it's amazing. A good example of that, an article on the ABC arguing that if Australia passes an anti-discrimination bill about religion, that Pentecostals will be able to go around verbally abusing disabled people. Um, now, that, that was an appalling article, ably refuted by Patrick Parkinson in an article he wrote for the ABC, but that one got a lot less, um, that was put on a different platform where it'd be less noticed. But, you know, this was, a, this was a complete misinformation by the ABC. Either they were horribly naive or they were advocating just complete propaganda against the legislation. I've read the legislation and it explicitly says it did not defend behaviour or activity that was hateful or vilifying. So it was this, this, if this law was passed and it wasn't, 
it was not going to empower these you know crazy Pentecostals going around telling people with disabilities that the reason their life sucks is they're possessed by demons or something like that. It was not going to empower that. But the ABC and other groups were kind of whipping up a storm of false information against it. In in my work here at the CIS, I helped edit a, a book on religious freedom published a year, a year or so ago called Forgotten No More, and had a number 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 of essays, including one by you, Michael. But uh, in in the in the introduction, I, I give something of the story of what went on, and I talk about the I, I use the word the Wentworth Panic when the Wentworth by election back some years ago. Suddenly, everyone got extremely excited and anxious about the, the the dangerous things that religious organizations were going to do. And so much of the debate was was extreme, irrational and unhelpful and panicky. And now it's all gone away again. This is, I think, dangerous. I'm hoping that the, the present government is uh, much more um, effective in keeping cool, rational heads on these matters. As far as I can tell, the federal ALP is doing a much better job than the uh, Victorian ALP when it comes to respecting the ethos of religious communities. And I think they learned that at the last election. Uh, Bill Shorten um, went very hard on the uh, playing the anti-religious card. I think the idea was the more we attack people who worship, the more the Australian people will worship us. Now, that works between uh, Ultimo and Newtown, but it doesn't work anywhere else in the country. <laughs> and the ethnic working class don't like it when you start, you know, uh, beating down on yeah. uh, religion. And the way they tried to pin the George Pell stuff, you know, on Scott Morrison uh, or his view of Israel Folau, they tried to get all sorts of religious stuff on the, and I think, and part of the reason, which the ALP's own federal report said, is that they need to get a better relationship with Asian voters and religious voters because that they were the two groups that they did the worst with. And they can do that. Kevin Rudd had a, a fairly good relationship with religious voters across his, um, across his time as prime minister. And so and the ALP does have a, a background of working well with religious voters, but every now and again, they give in to that, um, that inner city cabal who treats people of faith of, and as enemies of the state. Can I reverse the question now? Um, is it important, if you're right, secularism is good, secularism is, is a valuable and a pre precious thing, actually. You, you're right that um, it, it's unique to Western countries, often with Judeo-Christian background. Is it important for religious people to be more enthusiastic about secularism themselves and and not wishing, not hunkering for the good old days when they the church ran the state? Well, that's exactly right. I, I don't think the good old days are coming back. Um, certainly not, unless there's some sort of kind of sort of strange cultural been, revolution. There has been some discussion amongst Roman Catholics in America that liberalism has failed and we need to return to a state which determines what's good and therefore prioritizes prioritize the church. It's called inter integralism. It's not yep. going to get anywhere, but there has been a bit of a, a nostalgic look back at the time when the church and state were together. But I, uh, that's a movement. But I just find most Christians generally that I know of, they don't quite appreciate the value of secularism Yeah, and, that's and why it, it should be defended. Yeah. And that's why I'm I'm out there saying my thing. Look, secularism is not, is not the bad guy. Secularism is your bodyguard protecting you from the government. Um, so I find I find it hilarious when certain people go on the ABC, you know, saying that they're a bona fide secularist. And quite frankly, they're just baby boomers who hate people of faith. And that is not secularism. 
Um, you know, uh, there was a, I was a Peter, recently Peter Fitzsimmons got, you know, Michael Jensen, Reverend Michael Jensen in Sydney and a Victorian MP called Fiona Patton uh, talking about whether, you know, churches should have charities tax exempt status. Basically, Fiona Patton's argument was, I just don't like religious people or I don't like communities of faith. That was, that was the sum of her argument. So, you know, that we do live in a, in a context where there are some very hostile and militant versions of secularism. And what people of faith need to do, especially Christians, is uh, re-own the, the title secularism as, as a good thing that is it's good for a land of all faiths and none. It is good because it's going to be the one thing we need to protect us from certain progressive-leaning governments who are very eager to take punitive measures against religious communities where we don't align ourselves with the uh, progressive powers that be. I see you, you, you refer to a thing called civic totalism as the, as the, as the opposite the, the, of liberal democracy and, and of secularism. Do you want to unpack that for me briefly? Civic totalism. Yeah, that's a term I learned from the American uh, political philosopher Stephen Macedo. He says civic totalism is a view where you have a state that believes it must be supreme in all matters. And the role of the state is to direct or coerce its citizens to make sure its own beliefs and values are congruent with the aims and goals of progressive state. So that's where the state takes on more and more of the prerogatives of a coercive body to make sure you can have, you can have religion as long as it meets with the goals and aims and values of the state. And uh, the way I would describe it, um, if you take something like the Third French Republic, which was very anti-Semitic, which was also very anti-Catholic, and if you go somewhere between that and the Soviet Union, that's kind of what one, what I'm imagining, where you've got a, a government that wants to uh, control as much of religious life as it can and to try uh, harvest all that religious energy so it becomes directed towards its own goals and ambitions. Well, I see you you, you propose what you call confident pluralism. Yeah, and this is something I learned from another American legal philosopher, John Inazu, and he says confident pluralism is about learning to live with diversity, okay? And it's recognising that diversity is, in fact, one of our greatest strengths. Okay, so if we if we can find ways to learn with differences, not in spite of differences, but learn to live with differences, then we're going to have a far more harmonious, prosperous um, uh, civil life. We're going to have a better economy. We're going to have safer places. We're going to be devoid of sectarian violence. We're not going to have the various ruptures and rivalries that have destroyed endless civilizations before. So I think confident pluralism, you know, where we can be a land of all faiths and none, uh, where everyone can sit under their own vine and, and fig tree and nobody makes them afraid, that is going to be better for society than something like civic totalism, where you want a, a dictator or maybe not a dictator, a, a more autocratic type leader who will vanquish your enemies and make sure your own values remain the hegemony and they are uncontested and unrivaled. And my hope is that as a liberal democracy, we'll be more on the, of the mind of confident pluralism rather than along the lines of civic totalism. Michael Bird, my, la- my last area just to ask you, in your book, you have an interesting and rather unusual approach, I think. You, you draw attention that the question of LGBTQ rights and 
and equality on one hand and religious freedom on the other are often in tension. And uh, that's where, the, that's where the, the, the wars are occurring, the culture wars. You, you propose a peace. You think there may be a way forward, a, a mutual respect. Well, I think it has to happen um, because, you know, the only alternative is, is you're either going to have to kind of have a, a revolution and some sort of theocracy and a group of people trying to bring back anti-sodomite laws or something. Or the other extreme view is you start bulldozing, you know, Catholic churches, you know, tearing down mosques and synagogues. So, so if we're not so going what, to go to that point, we need... What has to need... happen? What has to happen, Michael, for the religious, religious community to respect the rights of the LGBTQIA people? I think religious communities have to be as maximally inclusive and tolerant of, of LGBTIQs as they can within the precincts of their own conscience. And so they have to accept that they, you, you're going to, we now live in a society where there are things like gay marriage. There are some very um, intense and animated discussions about gender and sexuality, and that's going to be part of the landscape. And we need to be able to be part of that with a certain degree of respect and decorum. At the same time, I think state actors and parts of the media have got to realise, you know, let, let the Muslims Muslim, let the Jews Jew, let the Hindus Hindu, let the, let the Christians be Christian, that type of thing. So we need something of mutual respect rather than trying to um, create a, a hegemonic structure which can impose its own values on each other. We need to learn to live with differences. This might mean that representatives of the different bodies should talk to each other. I notice that it tends, they tend to yell at each other. Yeah, they do. Um, and uh, Tim Wilson, a, a for, former Liberal MP, when he was the Human Rights Commissioner, he did some good work in bringing religious bodies and LGBT right groups together. And I thought he was, I thought he was doing a, a very good job in that role. And similar things have been done in places like Utah, where Mormon groups and LGBT right groups came together to try and reach a settlement about certain aspects of law, which which were you know enough that every, everyone had what they needed to live with. Maybe that maybe not everyone got what they wanted, but everyone got what they needed to live in peace with each other. And I think something like those those activities are going to help us move forward in a in a multicultural, multi faith democracy where we have different views of family, marriage, religion, God, state, and that kind of thing. Michael Bird, thank you very much. This has been another podcast from the Centre for Independent Studies. For decades, the CIS has been an independent voice working to deliver evidence-based policy within a classical liberal framework. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our cause. Head to cis.org.au to see how you can get involved. I'm Rob Forsyth. Thank you for listening.